Well, we're in uh, week four of, of, a, um, of a series that's walking us through something that Paul, in his letter to the church at Galatia, um, he, he talks about this idea that there are two ways to live life. <laughs> you can live life in which um, you sort of say, I'm going to do it my way, as Sinatra said. <laughs> and he goes, and that's really, like words like chaos come to mind, right? You ever know anyone who like, you know, I did it my way kind of thing, and it's just like chaos follows them like a wake behind a boat? And he says, that, that is one way to do life. But then there's another way, and he contrasts the one way as like going with the me, and he uses the shorthand language of um, going by your flesh. He doesn't mean your body, but he's talking about the part of you that's just like, I'm, I'm on top of the world, baby, it's me. <laughs> and he says, or you can be led by the Spirit, and life in the Spirit looks really, really different. And he, he says, if you remember from week one, we talked about this, this kind of analogy of we're to think of ourselves like trees, if you were here week one. This is what the author, authors of the Bible from like page one and two on to the very last page keep coming back to this idea. And so he, he picks on this ancient Hebrew theme, and he says, when, when you have life in you, it's, it's just like a tree having fruit. And he says, there's one particular fruit of the Spirit that, that you have if that life is inside you. And it, it sort of has nine flavors. And so each week we've been looking at sort of one of the flavors of this one singular fruit. And the first week we looked at how, just, how does the Holy Spirit function in our lives? Like, what role do I play? Is there a role that, like, is it me and Him? Is it me submitting? And so we looked a little bit at that dynamic of the Holy Spirit in me, uh, week two, we looked at the first one, love, and we said this, this, was, um, this was sort of the, the, the capstone uh, or the cornerstone. It's the most important one, love, and it's kind of the fountainhead through which or out of which all of these others even flow. And then we, we looked at joy last week, and um, one of the things, someone came up afterwards and said, so is, is sorrow the opposite of joy? And I, I, I kind of wish I would have clarified because I think, I don't think so. If you remember, Jesus was called a man of sorrows, was actually a, a, a title used about Jesus. He, he was a man of sorrows. Jesus, oftentimes, Jesus went around crying at different things, right? So sorrow is not the opposite of joy. I would say hopelessness is the opposite of joy. And when a person loses hope, that's when they, they, they turn toward despair, and so we looked at that idea of it's, it's possible to actually have joy in the midst of sorrows, isn't it? And so we tried to distinguish it from mere happiness, and we said it's something different. And this week, we get to the, the third one in the first triad, love, joy, and peace. That's sort of the first triad of these, because we looked, if you remember, Paul's giving these nine to us in three groups, three groups of three, three triads. So we're coming to the end of the first one. And one of the things that I, I guess I do just want to say before we jump into this is um, I, I, I hope no one expects in this that this is sort of like, this is the final word on uh, peace or that, you know, this is sort of a how-to. Once, once you do this, you know, you're all set. No, we're, we're, we're just scratching the surface. Um, and that's sort of a bit of a tension I feel within myself as, as we're doing this, you know, because I'm like, this, this should be like a like a 900-page book. I mean, there should be so much more here. We only have a few minutes to talk about it. So we're sort of scratching the surface. We're, we're orienting ourselves in a direction, 
And then we're saying, this is the way that we want to kind of lean into or, or walk into. Are you with me on that? So as we do that tonight, we're going to look at the idea of peace. What does it mean to have peace? There was, a, there was an interesting uh, article study that was done about 30 years ago from a, a secular uh, gentleman, and he was looking, and this is 30 years ago, he was looking at culturally what's, what's going on, and he noticed three things, this sociologist, some of these uh, studies that were done. He said, we as, a, we as a generation, we are healthier than all other generations that have come before us uh, in terms of just with the advancement of medicine and that sort of thing. Number two, we are wealthier. We have a greater sense of, of prosperity than even our parents or grandparents were, and the cost of, of large ticket items goes down over the years. And then thirdly, he said, is we have a greater sense of liberty. And what he meant by that is even things like traveling, something that would have been thought of years ago as an extreme luxury, is more common today, and then it might be because we have more money overall with people. It might just be there's more, it's more readily available, but healthy, wealthy, and liberty were these three that he talked about. And I would go further and say, think about this. Imagine you lived 100 years ago, and imagine I came to you, and I said, one day you're going to live in a place where, where you have this magic machine, and you, you can carry it around in your pocket, and you can access all the world's information in just the touch of a button. Can you imagine living in that kind of world? We're going to have other magic machines which will allow you, even if you're split by a continent away from your loved ones, you'll be able to have face time with them. You'll be able to see them and talk with them anytime you want, at a moment's notice, any time of the day. Imagine I said, you'll be able to go into a market and find items from all around the world, or even better yet, you'll be able to order these things using this magic machine, and they will arrive at your doorstep in two days or less, right? <laughs> I mean, you would think, that's crazy, a hundred years ago. You'd think, that's like utopian, right? I mean, wouldn't you think that? That's absolute utopian. What kind of world are you talking about. And then I said, and you're going to live, you know how right now you're expected to, you know, live, you know, to like late 40s? You're going to almost double that. You're going to be living into about 80 on the average. You just think, what, what, what kind of world is this? And yet, we're seeing rising rates of suicide, especially among uh, young people. We're, we know about the opioid epidemic. Um, study after study, tells us that the, there's this greater sense of anxiety or sort of a, a lack of peace. In fact, this one study that I mentioned that was done 30 years ago, he pointed out in it, he said, um, something is an epidemic if it, if it increases by 10%. At that point 30 years ago, anxiety had increased 20%. And that's what he, and again, things have only increased from there. So I'm not gonna suggest any overly simplistic, let me tell you why, that's, you know, why this is the case, that, that, that the, the nation that, that is the most prosperous and the most freest nation, not just in the world now, but in the history of the world here in America, why we are experiencing such high levels, therefore, of anxiety, of depression, and other things. So I'm not going to give you a simplistic answer because I don't think there is one. I think there are a lot of things that speak to it, but here's what I want to do. Given where we're at, I want to like rise above, give like a 30,000 foot view, and think through 
Why is it that we as hum humanity, whether we're living in the freest, most prosperous nation of the world or that hundred years ago or somewhere else, why is that peace is so elusive? <laughs> Do you know what I mean by that? Steady, ongoing peace in life feels so very elusive to me, and I think there's a core reason for that. And so let's go back. I would suggest you the core reason, and we're going to fill in a couple blanks in your, in your bulletin if you want to as we go here. But the core reason is that um, our world, why we long for peace, why our world longs for peace, and why it's so elusive, it goes back to page three in here. Uh, the third chapter recounts this disastrous rebellion that humanity made in the garden causing humanity to be, to be expelled from, from, from God's temple presence, not an actual temple, but his, his garden, his, his palace where he was, and they're expelled from it. And what we see, the immediate thing we see afterwards, it's the loss of peace. The author of Genesis doesn't want you to miss that, and so notice, notice the, the account that's given in the narrative. What happens immediately after humanity Adam and Eve are expelled from the presence of God. The first narrative in the account, it's about two brothers. Do you remember their names? Yeah, Cain and Abel. It's the very first account, and what's lost? Peace, right? There's, there's a division between brothers, and immediately, immediately, they're at war. That's, that's the lost of peace. Immediately there's a break between brothers. Immediately there's a break between parents and children. Immediately there's a break between husbands and wives, and the story <laughs> just goes on and on and on. Listen to Russell Moore, a theologian and ethicist. He, he puts it this way. He says, the canon of Scripture, by canon he just means the authoritative books. The canon of Scripture shows us tracks of blood from the very edge of Eden outward. Isn't that a graphic picture? It's like we, the narrative is like everything out here afterwards, the minute they leave, it's like tracts of our own blood walking out into the world. He says the biblical story immediately veers or vectors from paradise to depictions of murder, drunkenness, incest, gang rape, polygamy, and on and on right down to whatever is happening with you and with me. And that's, I mean, you see it in the first couple chapters. The author wants us to see the minute we lost something back there, enmity started, the lack of peace. And every, I don't know any one of us who's lived an honest moment of life that doesn't go, yeah, I get that. <laughs> I experience tastes of that. I experience bits of that. But conflict and chaos, it's at every single turn, isn't it? Um, pull up a map sometime. Go look at a map. Do you realize even the geographical borders of the map you're looking at, depending on what time period you're, you're looking at, even the geographical borders, they're tied to a history of conflict, right? That's what they are there for. It's interesting. Since the 16th century, so since the 1500s, there have been an, it's been estimated that there have been 8,000 known peace treaties that have been signed, known, 8,000 known peace treaties since the 16th century. All of them signed, I would suggest, at least most of them, with the intention that these will keep peace indefinitely, right? 
It's all, we're also told that most of them lasted little more than two years of these 8,000 peace treaties signed between nations and people groups and states and all that sort of thing since the 16th century. Most of them didn't even last two years. The ink was probably hardly dry on the treaty, <laughs> and there was something coming to challenge that peace. Think of just in your own lifetime, even places like the Middle East, or even in the past 25 years, how many different people and parties have attempted to broker peace. And again, the minute there's even a movement toward it, there's difficulty and challenge. This is the norm of life. <laughs> we live in a rare place where we don't experience that. This has been the norm for humans throughout history, and we are, again, fortunately, largely removed from it. <clears throat> so you don't have to look, again, around the world to see these marks. You'll find the marks in your own life. Look back at your family history. You'll see the marks. Look in some relationships, communities, jobs you've been in, whatever. You'll see the marks, right, of the lack of peace in that way. So if you've lived a moment, you know this is true, and you know how elusive peace is. So let's read Galatians chapter 5. Well, I'll, I'll read it. I don't think we have it up on the screens, but Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. This is our text here for this series. But the fruit of the Spirit, remember there's, there's the chaos way. This is the fruit of the Spirit. It is love, joy, peace. It is patience, kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to King Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. So let's think about the word peace. Even just language, as far as language goes, in the Old Testament, the word, if, if you know no Hebrew, probably the one Hebrew word you know is for peace, right? What is it? Yeah, shalom, right? The Greek, so that's the Old Testament. If you're reading in the Old Testament, that's, that's the word. And, and, and it's helpful because shalom is a very rich, thick, robust concept, and, and, and we'll hit on some of those pieces. In the New Testament, which is written in Greek, they translated with the word irene, irene. Some of you, maybe here, or maybe you know someone, whose, whose name comes from this word, irene. Anyone know someone named Irene? Well, that's, that's where that name comes from. That's, that's just a transliteration of the word peace. And if, if you have that name, I hope you are living up to your name. I'm not sure if you are. Ask, ask your friends if you are. But these, these are the words. Now, here's something about both of these words is Peace in the biblical concept, it doesn't mean the way that I tend to think about it. Here's the way that I tend to think about peace. I'm not fighting anyone right now. You know what I mean by that? <laughs> Which I'm defining it negatively, right? Are you with me? I'm defining it by the absence of conflict. Are you at peace with your neighbor? Yeah, we're not, you know, we're not throwing like pitchforks at each other. No, no, no. Biblical peace is, do you have shalom? Do you have a rene? It means that you have this robust, close relationship. If that, if that makes sense. The word shalom is used of, of even physical objects in the Old Testament when, when, they were, were, when Solomon finished the temple and he sort of finalized it. The temple now has shalom. All these different parts and pieces are finally together. Does that make sense? They're sort of like put together. A wall could be spoken of that has a lot of bricks to it as, as having shalom once the last brick is in place. So a lot of pieces, a lot of moving parts, a lot of people working on it, but shalom is when it's like, it's completed, 
it's sealed. So we're, we're kind of getting at the idea. It's not defined negatively, I'm not fighting anyone. <laughs> it means this, what's required to have a, a, a thick, robust, healthy living situation? Could be with a person, could be with a wall, a building, or whatever. Whatever's required for you to, believe, to be living like fully, that's shalom. That's a rene. Um, I think maybe a, a better or a more helpful English word to attach to peace is flourishing. To me, that makes more sense. If something's flourishing, if it's a plant, oh, it's got the water, it's got the sunlight, it's got all that, I don't know what's all involved in that. <laughs> it's got everything required for it to flourish. That's shalom, that's a rene. And so when, when Paul talks about, I want you to have peace, or this command to have peace, or the peace of God, it's not just, hey, don't punch anybody. You know what I mean? How many of you parents are like, that's the kind of peace I want for my kids, right? Because it's like, you know, sometimes you're just like, as long as you're not punching one another, that's fantastic, right? That's not shalom. That's just absence of conflict. Shalom would be, man, they're like helping each other when someone drops something. You know what I mean? They're like making them, oh, would you like me to make you lunch? Like, all that stuff is involved in shalom. All that stuff is involved in a rainy. It's not just, again, abstaining from like hitting the other one with a two by four. It's, it's much bigger than that. So the word peace, uh, it's used a lot of different ways. We're going to hit a couple of them. Um, not all of them are what Paul's thinking of when he says uh, the fruit of the Spirit in your life is a rene or shalom, but they're still helpful because there are dots connected. So let's do this. Um, if you want to fill in the first blank, the peace that God made, if you want to fill in the word made in that first blank. Let me read for you Ephesians 2, 11 through 18. It's a little long, but I think we can get through it. Ephesians 2, verse 11, says, Therefore, remember that formerly, now as I'm reading this, listen to how, how the word peace functions and where it's at in this text. Paul writes, Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, non-Jews, non-Hebrews, and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcised, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ. That's Think of garden language, out, separated from. Excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. That's with promises to Abraham, promises to Moses, to, to David and all those. Without hope, without God in the world, but now in King Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So that was the mechanism, the cross. Verse 14, he says, for he himself is our peace. So think about how he's using the word peace here. <clears throat> Jesus is our peace. Who has made the two groups, what are the two groups? Gentiles and the covenant people, have made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. How is that? By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity. That's, that's been God's goal, is to create one humanity um, out of the two, thus making peace. And in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, 
by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near, both those in the covenant and those outside of the covenant. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So sometimes Paul uses the word peace and he's talking about something God accomplished. Does that make sense? He's talking about something that this kind of peace is, is a result of the work of atonement, meaning what Jesus paid for on the cross. He accomplished something that God and only God can accomplish this kind of shalom or this kind of irene. Do you remember, uh, if you remember the Christmas story, the, the, these angels appear to the shepherds and what is it that they say to them? Do you remember? Glory to God in the highest and peace, shalom, this kind of, on earth, who? To humanity, that's the kind, Jesus is bringing that kind of shalom, that kind of irene to this people. So the peace that God made, that's one kind of peace, but number two, the peace that God gives. Do you want to fill in that second blank with the word gives? And this kind of peace comes, um, we might say two dimensions, there's peace with God, and then there's the peace of God. You see those there. Um, the peace with God, Romans 5, 1 through 2 says, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. So the idea is that when I, when I put my trust in the person of Jesus who died for my sins, I come into a right relationship with God, which gives me peace with Him. Uh, so this refers to a peace of heart, peace of conscience, um, absence of guilt, that I, can, that I can walk into the presence of God, as it were, and have no sense of guilt. I'm not an outsider anymore. I've, I've, I have peace with God. And again, it doesn't just mean we're not fighting. Like you, that's why that's so important. We have a flourishing relationship. I have a flourishing relationship with God, regardless of how I feel about it. <laughs> I have a flourishing relationship with Yahweh God of creation because Jesus has accomplished it on the cross. That's a really thick concept of peace. It doesn't just mean he's not going to hit me with a two-by-four like my kids. It's relationship. It's love. It's longing for closeness. So I have that. And number two, so I have peace with God, but number two, I also have the peace of God. This means peace of mind. Uh, kind of what we were talking about earlier, lack of anxiety in this sort of peace, your last, lack of panic. Jesus told us, he said, I don't want you to live in a way where worry is constantly on your heels. Instead, I want you to live in, a way, in such a way that you trust God so deeply that things like anxiety and worry don't plague you constantly. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Listen to these words. These are Jesus' words. He says, therefore I tell you, now he's talking to his students, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. How, am I, how are you guys doing at that? Yeah, me neither. What, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? 
and I love this, you know, he's, he's teaching outside, and there are trees around, and there's probably a bird or a number of birds sitting in a tree, and he says, look, look over there, look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap, they're not planting like you guys have to, they don't store away their food in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they are? Yes. Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? That's pretty profound, basic wisdom. (laughs) That's a great question. Can I add even an hour? Of course, we know. No, actually, I subtract hours, right? Worrying. It was interesting. I I don't know if you guys have gone on to, um, it's it's sort of a morbid thing, but it's interesting. It's it's called deathclock.com. This is a real thing. I did it. You go into deathclock.com, you enter your age, your, just a couple pieces of information, and then it's, it's kind of scary. You click it, and it tells you, here's the exact day you're going to die, and then it starts counting down. And you're just like, oh, <laughs> you know? What's so fascinating is it said, one of the questions on there was like, are you someone who's negative and worries? And so, I, like, first I was like, mm, maybe. So I clicked it. When I, when I unclicked it the next time, it tacked on an extra, like, 15, 20 years, and I was like, I like that one. I like that one there. Um, but but Jesus, Jesus is on to something. Can you add a single year to your life by right? No, it's the exact opposite. Jesus goes on, and why do you worry about clothes? See the flowers of the field? They don't labor or spin. They're not sowing anything. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon, remember great King Solomon who had all the fancy stuff, in all of his splendor was dressed like one of those. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you? And then he says, oh, you of little faith. I kind of like that because that's me. <laughs> it's like, oh, good. Even the people who have little faith. So don't worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? He says, the pagans run after they pursue, they have as their primary goal those things. He says, your heavenly Father knows you need them, but seek first, here's the famous language, right? We've heard this one. Seek first his kingdom rule, his righteousness, and all of these other things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. That's so true. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Paul echoes Jesus' teachings and explicitly links uh, links it to the peace that God gives in Philippians 4.6. Paul says, don't be anxious. He says about anything, which is that's extreme. I mean, if he said, like, don't be anxious on Thursdays, I'd be like, okay, I can, I can go Thursday with that. Don't, don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer, by petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, man, that's what we long for, the peace of God, which transcends understanding of the given circumstances and situations and everything, what, what should be there, it'll do something really beautiful. It actually says it will bring guarding, it will act as a guarding presence to your heart and to your mind in King Jesus. So as I'm rooted in King Jesus, it actually guards my heart and my mind. Those are the two places that get attacked when anxiety comes, right? Those are the places that, man, I'm just plagued when I, when I allow myself 
to step into, to lean into anxiety. So Paul's not just giving sort of a happy-go-lucky like bumper sticker you know, for life or anything like that. He's saying this comes as a result of a settled trust in God's fatherly care. And it's, it's, it, it comes when, when I learn to live in the steady refusal to give into anxiety. So it's an element of my will, it's an element of habituation, of what I have allowed, places I've allowed my mind to go, that I choose not to give in to worry, but instead I choose to do things like pray, I choose to do things like meditate. Uh, I remember someone once saying, uh, you know, meditating is where, you know what biblical meditation is? It's not Eastern meditation is where you empty your mind, Biblical, Middle Eastern meditation is where you fill your mind with something and you just roll it over. It's like looking in, you ever look into like a dryer and you just see the clothes going over and over and over? That's a picture of, of what biblical Middle Eastern meditation is. It's filling my mind with something and just chewing over and over and over. And I remember someone saying, well, that's, that's how worrying functions, right? That's what I do when I worry. I just have a thought in my mind, something I'm worried about. And I just, and so they said, you know what, if you can worry, you can meditate. And I was like, okay, I like that. I like, because I'm really good at worrying. I'm like PhD. I'm fantastic at worrying. Meditating, not so much, but, but I realize it's the same thing. It's the same function and activity. It's what I'm putting inside the washer, though, or the dryer, to let just go over and over again. <clears throat> Listen to the words of Christopher Wright, one uh, scholar. He says, for a life that is filled with this kind of peace, he says, it's a powerful witness to the gospel. Boy, that's true, isn't it? It is in, he says, it's in the non-Christian home or in the non-Christian workplace that the people who live with the peace of God in their hearts and who work to create or restore peace among others stand out and get noticed. I thought, boy, that, do you know anyone like that? Like, like, who's the first person, I wonder, that comes to your mind when you think about, like, this, this person, I see the fruit of the spirit of, of peace in their life, maybe amidst a really challenging circumstance, maybe it's a place of work, maybe it's in your home, maybe it's, some, maybe it's a family member that is, you know, kind of distant, whatever, but you'd say, that's one of the first people I think of, and it's a sort of living model of peace, and it's a powerful thing. So let me do this. I want to give, this is six, these are kind of incomplete thoughts. They're just sort of things that as I was thinking about this and wrestling through, six things that, that I would say disrupts my peace when I am trying to lean, when I'm trying to pursue and follow God. These are six things that, that trip me up that I need to be aware of, and maybe some of them are helpful for you. Number one, and this is something kind of similar that we uh, talked about last week. This isn't in your in your bulletin at all, but number one is unrealistic expectations. Um, Jesus said to his followers in John 16, 33, the context is he just told them, hey, um, you're, you're going to be thrown out of the temple, and there are going to be people who try to kill you, and they think they're actually serving God. <laughs> and then he says this, I have told you these things so that uh, you may have so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Uh, I was listening to someone who lives in um, New York. Anyone here lived in New York or been to New York? I've never even been there. 
I, I like see movies, and it's always like the traffic, right? And this guy was saying, he said, um, I, I will take a cab, because it sounds like people take cabs everywhere. He says, I'll take a cab, and um, he said, I could count on two hands the number of time the cab driver has been rear-ended. And, and just, you know, I'm going half a mile. He's like, it happens all the time. And he was talking about the kind of response and attitude. He's like, they're just used to rear-ending. I mean, it happens apparently like a lot. And, and then he said, think about what would happen here in Colorado with the rear-ending, right? I mean, there's like, oh yeah, I've been rear-ended like three times today. Like here, I mean, you just flip out. You're like, what is wrong with you, right? You, like you'd get so much more upset. Why? Because you don't expect it. You don't expect that to happen in any way. I remember uh, last, was it? Yeah, it, it was last year on, on our Israel trip. We were in Jerusalem, and Tom and Lisa, a couple on our trip, um, that we were walking through the busy st- streets of Jerusalem, and uh, it's very, very safe there, but you know, you want to walk, watch for pickpockets and all that sort of thing. Well, Tom realizes, which just blows me, this happened. A dude walked by and bumped and pulled his wedding ring off. And, and Tom didn't know it for like five minutes. But he did remember, oh, I remember when I got bumped back there. And his wedding, and this person stole his wedding ring off his finger. It's like amazing. And, and, and I'm like horrified. I was like, oh my gosh, we got to call the cops. And so we, all of a sudden, and Tom was like cool as a cucumber. And I was like, it's your wedding ring, man. And he goes, that's the third one I've lost. <laughs> and he was like, it was like normal for him, like mildly. I mean, he was kind of like bummed, like, ah, shoot lost another wedding ring, you know, but he's like bought some His expectations were formed by his life. I mean, I would have been, I would have been like, you know, beside myself, you know, oh, Kirsten's going to kill me. I lost my camp. Think of how much money that wedding. I just went, he's just like, oh, another one, you know, that sort of thing. This happens a lot. I remember an illustration that uh, C.S. Lewis gave one time, which was, I, I thought, absolutely f- fantastic. He said this, suppose that I'm going to take you to a place to spend the night, Okay. And before I take you, I say, this is the honeymoon suite, okay? What are your expectations when you walk in the room? Or I say, uh, this, is, uh, this is a jail cell. What are your expectations when you walk in the room? Listen to Lewis's words. He says, if you're shown a hotel room you've been told uh, is a honeymoon suite, your expectations will be high. If there's no plush carpet, spa, and champagne, you'll be disappointed. On the other hand, if you've been told before the door opens that it's a jail cell, you'll be delighted to find even the most modest comforts. Isn't that true? That is so true. Here's the point. Our expectations are the filter. Your expectations about what life should be, how much peace you should have, if your peace should ever be attacked or questioned, that's the filter you're going to have for when the rear end happens, when the ring gets stolen, when the fill in the blank, whatever it might be. So expectations can actually be oppressive to me. They can be oppressive to you. So here's, my, here's, here's one of my questions. Do you expect that your peace will be attacked constantly? <laughs> Do you expect that your peace will be attacked consistently? Jesus said it would. <laughs> and yet each time it happens, I'm, what's going on? Right? I'm shocked. I can't figure, why would this happen? Jesus said it will be constant. It will be consistent. You will be attacked. And so many Christians, I think, are cast down all the time because they don't expect to be attacked on their peace and on their joy. I've discovered for me, this is just me, when I'm sad, you know, times like this, um, 
maybe half of my sadness is being sad that I'm sad. Half of my disappointment is being disappointed that I'm disappointed. And even if, if, if I weren't so upset about being upset, I'd be like half as upset as I was, right? So at least half of my anger, half of my guilt, half of my frustration comes from this feeling. It's not supposed to be like that, <laughs> right? Why do we think that? I mean, I'll, I'll talk to couples, you know, marriages, you know, struggling. Marriage shouldn't be this difficult. Why? <laughs> I'm in a job. I mean, it just shouldn't be this hard. To, why? <laughs> but see, we naturally think that and believe that. A lot of it has to do with our particular point in history, I think, our time, our culture, where we live. As we said earlier, the most prosperous, the freest nation. Wonderful. Love that. It's also going to create some expectations that may not align with kingdom reality about living in God's world. So another one, and uh, some of these I'm going to go real quickly through here. Another thing that um, interferes with me experiencing genuine peace in my heart is just unwanted circumstances. Uh, these are the things that cause me to say, why this? Why me? Uh, why, why now? And what I have to realize is, unless I've identified God as sovereign over everything, sovereign over all of life and all circumstances, unless I've really established that, I am quickly robbed of my peace. Um, number three, uh, and before I say this, you might need to go back to what we talked about. Last, if you remember last week, I gave, I gave 12 things that this licensed psychologist said are myths about depression, and it applies for this as well. This is a myth about the lack of peace or anxiety, and that, that, that myth is that anxiety always results from sin or lack of faith. Baloney. It's not true. Okay, again, if you're in, talk more about that, go back and listen to that. But I just say that because the third one is, um, having said that, another thing that hinders my experience of genuine peace is... Um, unconfessed sins. Unconfessed sins in my life doesn't always do that. I mean, that, that's not always the, the cause of it, but unconfessed sins. Things that I've just, I've begun to tolerate. Little things, you know, and I just begin to kind of tolerate them. Um, you know, I, um, I kind of try to, um, you know, treat them like a pet. Well, I'll just keep it in check kind of thing in my life. But the Bible teaches that, that my disobedience to the clear teaching of Scripture and peace cannot hold hands. They cannot exist in the same heart. And so it's right for me to feel guilty about unconfessed sins toward other people, toward whatever it might be. Why is that? Because that leads me to go and confess my sins, to go to the cross, confess, knowing that I am fully forgiven for those sins in my life. Number four, another thing that interferes is uncertainty about the future. What's gonna happen? What's, what's gonna happen with this particular situation? How is this going to work out? How are these details going to come together? See, unless I have confidence in that God who takes care of the sparrows, the flowers, remember that? Unless that's deep inside me, um, I'm not gonna be able to live with peace with Whatever the next, maybe you're, th oh gosh, you know, the presidential election cycle, end of this year, oh, how am I going to handle that? You know, what, what kind of world are we coming, you know, where are things going? You're not going to be able to handle that because those of us who sort of need, anyone here need to kind of be in control? <laughs> I don't say control freak, but, you know, I think it's probably more of us than would admit. We deeply desire to be in control, and that will rob me of my peace because there's so much uncertainty 
There's so much uncertainty. Listen to James 4.13. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. And yet you don't even know what tomorrow will bring, he says. What is your life? For you are a mist that disappears for, or that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, we ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and go and do this or that. Number five, something that interferes with, with my genuine peace, is hindrances, or, or hinders it, is pain from my past. So if uncertainty is about my future, this I'm talking about my past, and specifically the things that, that I have maybe done in my past. Um, one of the tactics of the evil one is he's called the accuser. That's, you know, the word Satan just means the accuser. He comes to, to me um, and will say, hey, do you remember, remember that thing in college? <laughs> that was pretty rotten of you. Like, what kind of person does that? Remember the way you treated that person at that work site? I mean, what kind of person does that, right? If I've confessed those sins, Scripture tells me they've been moved as far as the east is from the west, to the deepest pit of the ocean, trying to create something where it's like, you can't even access it anymore. I've been completely forgiven, and yet I know that I have an enemy of my life who will constantly cause me to remember, just remember those things, and I lose immediately that, that peace in my life. Number <coughs> um, six is uh, uncontrolled desires. Uncontrolled desires, and, and we'll, we'll say more about this when we get to the uh, self-control, that particular one in the fruit of the Spirit, but listen to James 4, 2. He says, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. See, that's why you, you never have peace if you have an envious heart. If, if you have an envious disposition or leaning or a jealous disposition or leaning about things, you will never, peace will be so elusive to you because you'll constantly be wanting that one thing right there. Remember the movie, anyone seen the movie um, Count of Monte Cristo? It's such a good, it's fabulous. Go rent it, it's so good. The beginning, it, it's, it's, it's these two friends. One comes from, he's, he's not pretentious, he's very humble, comes from humble means. The other is very pretentious, comes from money. And they're best friends. And the humble one has this girlfriend named Mercedes, and they're in love. They're going to get married. And um, one time, this humble friend, he's, he's away, and the one of the means who, who's never been satisfied, he's trying to kind of steal her for himself. And this, her being quite um, intuitive, she says, I know what you're trying to do. And he says, what's that? And she said, when we were children, he got, this humble friend, he got a whistle for his birthday. You got a pony. And you were so mad because you weren't as happy with your pony as he was with, your, with his whistle. <laughs> he said, and I'm not going to be just another whistle for you. See, he was bothered. He couldn't enjoy things. He couldn't enjoy a pony. And this guy could enjoy a whistle. He loved that. It was fantastic. I got a whistle. Best thing in the world. Right? And he, but why? Because he was this envious person. He never had peace where the other one, he had peace with a whistle. He thought it was fantastic. That's that picture of what it's like. So we've looked at the peace that God made through the cross, the peace that God gives, peace of mind, and then thirdly and lastly, and we don't really have time to go into it, unfortunately, uh, the peace that God calls for. Number three, the peace that God calls for. 
Um, this is the peace that God calls us to work at or to work for. There's a command to live at peace with one another or work for peace. Um, this is the most frequent way that Paul uses it and refers to it. Here's, here's what I would give you a little challenge. This week, because like we said, this isn't the last word on things, here's, here's a challenge to kind of dig into this one because we didn't get as much time to talk about it. Here, read that passage of Scripture. Do you see the Romans 14, uh, 1 through 15, 13? I've given you some reflection questions there, but read through this because what, what Paul said, Paul's writing to a circumstance which he's assuming there's conflict. And he doesn't just say, well, you're right and you're, and you're wrong. He goes, yeah, this is a disputable matter, meaning you're going to continue having conflict. <laughs> but he says, when you have the conflict, number one, we have to r- remember that you're subject to the Lord, both of you, both parties. Number two, you have to remember that we're constrained by love. That's, that has, those are like the, uh, you know, the guardrails. And then number three, that uh, we are to be shaped by the example of Christ. How did, how did Christ handle conflict? And so I encourage you to read that passage. It's, it's about a, a page long or so. Answer these questions and think about what are some of the conflict situations you're in, especially if you're in some. You, you will, I think, get out of it some practical tools about how do I continue having this conflict in a way that recognizes God is Lord of you know, both that um, love is my guide, and that ultimately I need to use the example of Christ. So perhaps before we, as we go into communion, um, let, let me read for us a prayer that kind of maybe gets our hearts oriented and right. It's a prayer that's uh, been attributed to Francis of Assisi, and technically we don't really know who wrote it, but it says this, and you, you've probably heard this before, but this is, w- would you make this your prayer tonight? Lord, Make me an instrument of thy peace. Boy, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is hatred, let me so love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is darkness, light. And where there is sadness, joy. O divine master, Grant that I may not so much seek to be consoled as to console, to be understood as to understand, to be loved as to love, for it is in giving that we receive, it is in pardoning that we're pardoned, and it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace.